Amen. Please be seated. Well, we would invite any children here today to be dismissed to Children's Church, which you can find through the door over here by the piano. I believe the uh, Children's Choir is meeting today, if I'm not mistaken. With the rest of you, open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. Gospel of Luke, chapter 6. I believe it's on like page 1020. In your, if you're using a pew Bible, Luke chapter 6, <clears throat> page 1020. And today we'll be studying verses 27 to 36. And let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to Your Word now, we thank You that it is Your Word, that this is the living Word of God, that we're not simply studying some ancient document or some arcane religious text, but that this Word is alive today because it is Your Word, that we read the Bible and we find the Bible reads us. We find that Your Word changes us. And so, Lord, we come to You putting our hope in the living power of the Word through the Holy Spirit, praying that it would change our lives today. God, I want to especially thank you for the Gospels because we didn't get to walk with Jesus. We didn't get to know Jesus when he was on earth. And the Gospels give us such an insider's view of what he was like. And we know, Lord, that even some of those who saw him on earth didn't believe. And some who saw his miracles didn't believe. And so we thank you, God, that you've allowed us to see Jesus with the eyes of our heart. And even though we've never seen him with our physical eyes, we see him in these scriptures and we believe And Lord, we pray that you would help our unbelief, which still lingers from time to time. Show us yourself today, Jesus. Show us who you are and what it means to follow you as members of your kingdom. So be with us now as we study your word, and we pray this in your name. Amen. Let me just read the text. But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back then your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High because He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. You know, there's a big difference between uh, traveling abroad and living abroad. It's one thing to visit Italy for 10 days on vacation. 
It is a completely different matter to move to Italy and have to learn to speak Italian and drive Italian and uh, shop Italian and work there and, and learn how the whole system works. Uh, when you talk to people who've moved from America to some other country, especially a country where English is not the main language, and you ask them, you know, wh- what is it like? I'm thinking especially of missionaries here. They'll often tell you, at first you feel like a baby because you don't, you're not able to do the most basic functions. You know, you don't know how to order food from the menu and the guy doesn't understand you when you do. You don't know how to ask, where's the bathroom? And then once you do understand and they give you an answer, you can't understand what they said. It's just very humiliating. And all the rules are different. All the things that you thought were just normal, you realize when you move to Brazil or Kenya or Cambodia that, oh, that's just American. And in Peru, they have a completely different way of doing this and that. Especially relationships. Relationships work different. The assumptions, the values. There's a completely different worldview that surrounds us as Americans, or any culture you're in, that you don't realize until you get transplanted to a different culture. And that transition from culture A to culture B can often be so traumatic, it can be so jarring, that we have a term for it. It's called culture shock which is the psychological process of, of discomfort and pain that lasts you know, six months to a year that a person experiences when they go from one culture to another as they try to break into that new worldview uh, in which they find themselves. Becoming a follower of Jesus Christ is a lot like being relocated from one culture to another culture. We are radically disconnected from the kingdom of this world and we are placed within the kingdom of God. Except you don't go anywhere. You're still at the same house. You still work the same job. You still are in the same family. You drive the same car. You wear the same clothes. You speak the same language. Except everything is different because this kingdom of God is fundamentally an internal reality. The kingdom of God is God's lordship over my heart and my life. And so when I become a Christian... Everything is the same, and yet everything has changed. And the the way I approach life and relationships and money and everything has been radically altered. And sometimes that process can be very jarring, and it can feel like a kind of culture shock because the ways of the kingdom of God are so radically different from the ways of the kingdom of this world. And it can be hard following Christ because we keep getting confronted with how it is in the kingdom of God, and we keep saying, what? You want me to do what? And I feel like today's passage is one of those texts. This is a story, or rather a teaching from Christ, about what it looks like to live as a member of the kingdom of God. And just to put our text in context, if you were here last Sunday, you remember that starting in verse 17 of chapter 6, we launched into an extended sermon from Jesus. We have little snippets of his sayings here and there in Luke, but this is the first time we have an extended sermon. Now, before this, in chapters 4 and 5, just glancing backward, we had more stories about what Jesus did and who Jesus was. So there would be this mosaic made up of little tiles, and one tile would be Jesus healing a paralytic. Another tile would be Jesus um, healing a leper, uh, Jesus driving out a demon. And so we had these little vignettes of who Jesus is, and the point of chapters 4 and 5 is to call us to believe in Jesus and follow Jesus. But then the question is, okay, I believe in Jesus, I follow Jesus, what does that look like now? So chapter 6 really transitions us, if you want to think of it this way, from evangelism to discipleship. 
What does it look like to be a, an apprentice of Jesus Christ and to believe in him and to follow after him? And so that's what chapter 6 is. If you look at uh, verse 20, that's where the sermon begins. Looking at his disciples, he said. And so Christ is now looking at us. He's looking at me. And he's now going to instruct me as a disciple in what it looks like to be one of his followers. And last Sunday, Seth preached on the first part of the sermon. And if you were here, it was, it was great. We, we looked at the fact that this world is fading away and the world to come is eternal, and therefore we should not try to find our satisfaction and happiness and identity in this world. We should look to the world to come, even if that means in this world we may have some sorrow, because this is not where we're looking to get ours. It's in the the heavenly rewards. That was last Sunday. And and isn't that culture shock? Isn't that jarring? I mean, who lives that way in this world? It's all about this world when you live in this world, not the world to come. Well, today we come to another jarring, shocking I can't believe you're saying this, Jesus kind of teaching. Look at verse 27. But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies. Just let that sink in for a minute. Love your enemies. Because I think it's one of those verses that maybe you've heard before and you're like, hey, I love my enemies. No, 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 no. think about that. I mean, if you'd never heard this verse before, and you had never uh, studied this teaching, and I were just to tell you, please complete this sentence, blank your enemies. What would you instinctively put in the, the blank? You know, maybe defeat, uh, neutralize, overcome, if you're honest, kill, destroy. I mean, that's what you do with enemies. That's the very essence of an enemy. The last word that we'd probably pick, if we were honest, is the word love. But that's the word Jesus comes with. Love your enemies. And it's not an option. He's commanding us as his followers. I thought, you know, let's make this even a little more personal. Let's take out the word your enemies. And let's put in the name of a specific person that you know who is your enemy. Okay, and think about this. Who is it? Maybe it's someone who's wronged you, someone who stabbed you in the back, someone who's told lies about you to others and spread misinformation about you so that others are turned against you. Maybe it's somebody who's uh, broken promises. Maybe it's somebody who's stolen from you. Maybe someone took you to court. Okay? All right? Someone who sued you personally. Now, now think of that person. Get their face in front of you. Maybe it's a bully at school. Maybe it's your ex. Maybe it's your neighbor. And, you know, you got this neighbor. You can't talk to him because there's all this tension. And you drive in your driveway at the same time they drive in theirs. And, you know, you walk into your house without looking at them because there's all this mm, angst and animosity. Now, get that person's name in your mind. And let's listen to it again. Love, person's name. Frank. Susie. Whoever it is. This is is radical. What kind of love is this? To love your enemies. And I think especially Jesus is uh, thinking of those who are our enemies as a result of us following Christ. People who because of my commitments in Christ and my belief system, there are people who would be at odds at me because of that. Uh, I talked to a lady this week uh, in our church who um, had that experience with one of her neighbors just over Christmas. Uh, and it was she now has an enemy who lives in her neighborhood because of her commitment to Christ. Uh, this is a, a lady in our church and her husband, very quiet people. They are not outspoken, loud, in-your-face people. Just very quiet, keep to themselves. But they recently signed this ballot drive uh, to 
which hopefully will be on the ballot in Massachusetts in two years, to, to vote whether or not we want to define marriage as between a man and a woman. And I don't know if you know, there's a huge petition drive. They collected, I think, certified 170,000 signatures, which is the most ever in any ballot drive in Massachusetts history. So, and you know, the idea of this is, hey, let the people vote. You know, instead of a couple few judges deciding on this huge controversial issue, let's let the people of Massachusetts have a vote. So that was the whole petition drive. So they signed the petition. But now the petition is public knowledge, if you signed it, because the names have to be certified. Well, apparently some uh, organization took the names in sort of an intimidation tactic and have posted them on a website. That's uh, called knowthyneighbor.org. So I went on there, and there's my name on the website. And, and the idea is it's intimidation. So it's, you can go on there and do a search and see who in my neighborhood signed this petition. Did anyone on my street, you could search by street, by name, by town, by whatever, to try to find if there's anyone who signed this. And so you can guess where this is going. Uh, there's a family in this couple in our church. They have, there's two people in their neighborhood, lesbian couple. Uh, this guy in our church actually plows their driveway with snow if there ever snows. And they did the Google search, who in my neighborhood, or the, the Know Thy Neighbor search, who in my neighborhood signed this. They found out these people did. And they came out and just got right in their face and said, listen, I don't want you plowing my driveway anymore. I don't want to talk to you. We have to take a stand against people like you who signed this petition. And, you know, these are really quiet people, and they're like, ah, <laughs> really ruined the lady's Christmas almost. Because, okay, so now put yourself in that position or one of those positions. Imagine that kind of ideological tension, which we can all feel because we live in this state. Imagine that kind of ideological tension. And imagine what is it like now to live in a neighborhood with somebody with whom there's just that kind of feeling, regardless of whatever side you are on that issue. I mean, imagine that kind of just, ooh, negative energy every time you pull in to your home. What do you do in that situation? And Jesus' answer is, love your enemy. Wow. <laughs> Can you feel how just jarring that statement is now? Love your enemies. And lest we think of love as simply a warm, good feeling, divorced from action, Jesus goes on to elaborate on what he means by love so that there's no wiggle room whatsoever. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. So if somebody hates my guts and they can't stand me and every time I walk in the room they go, and they roll their eyes and they they just feel this atmospheric pressure against me whenever I'm in the same place with them, what should I do to that person? And Jesus' answer is, do good. You know, hold the door for them. Show them common courtesies. If they're at work and they've got a lot of work to do, ask them if you can help them by doing their copying for them. You know, do some nice deeds for them. What? (laughs) I'm going to be a doormat. Do good to those who hate you. Verse 28, bless those who curse you. So now we're thinking about the power of words. And so if somebody is my enemy and they show their hatred for me by using their mouth against me, calling me names, swearing at me, uh, slandering me, telling bad stories about me to other people that aren't true, twisting the truth, I mean, that gets me madder than anything else when, when truth is twisted. I mean, is, it, is that get your goat? It gets my goat. And, and now what do I do to that person? What do I say to them? And Jesus says, use your mouth to bless them. <laughs> what? Yeah. Be kind to them. Speak kindly to them. Speak kindly about them. Compliment them. Thank them. Use your mouth in a courteous way toward the person who's using their mouth to destroy you, is what Christ says. And then this last one. Pray for those who mistreat you. 
Pray for those who abuse you or harm you in some way. Uh, we should pray. We should forgive. Because otherwise we don't pray for the person. Bitterness sets in. And then we become just as bitter and angry and nasty as that person. Uh, think about that. That's the Christian response to abuse. What should you do if you have been abused by somebody in some way? How do you handle that as a Christian? And you know, I don't have the full answer to that because that's a really deep, huge, lifelong kind of thing you have to wrestle with. And I believe, and I've seen that God can heal people who've been abused, but it's a long process. It's not a you know snap your fingers kind of thing unless by God's miraculous grace. So, so what do we do though? And, and I don't have all the answers, but I do know this: we should pray. And the prayer is not, Lord, may they burn in hell, okay? <clears throat> the prayer is, God, I forgive them. Help me to forgive them. Because I know that tomorrow I'm not going to feel very forgiving. And God, bless them. And God, help them to repent and turn to Jesus and turn away from their evil. Because I know that someday they will pay for that if they don't turn to Christ. And so we have to pray for those who've abused us. That's extremely difficult. But this is the way of Christ. You know, here in this church, we've been trying to expand. We've been trying to add on to our facility. And there are some people in the neighborhood around us, around our church, who really are angry about that. And they've opposed us. And and frankly, in my opinion, uh, they've said some really awful, hurtful, false things about us. I've been in public meetings, the town hall. I've never been to these meetings. They're, They're awful. And people stand up and just fire away. Apparently, you can get to these meetings, you can just say whatever you want. I guess that's how government works in town meeting kind of governments. And, and people just fight, and they say these horrible things, and there's this part of me that's like, ooh, you know, step outside, let's go. You want to talk about this? <laughs> you know, if I'm honest. Uh, and, and I've got to pray for these people. I've got to make sure that I don't have bitterness and anger in my heart. Yeah, we can disagree, and we can go through the legal processes in town. There's nothing wrong with that as a Christian. But, but in my heart toward those people, I have to love them, and I can't let hatred build up, because that's not the way of the kingdom of God. If I'm going to build the kingdom of God, it's got to start here, not in the facility. And so this is a test for us. It's a challenge for us to love those who oppose us and say things about us that I just think are true and hurtful and not right. <clears throat> Isn't this so different than the world? Isn't this so different from the way you and I were brought up? You know, we were brought up and if some guy punches you, you just punch him right back. Some guy kicks you, you, you know, kick him harder. You stab me, I shoot you. I mean, it's, it's a revenge culture. That's how business works. You can't go through business and, and do business in this country with this sort of doormat kind of attitude. And so we've been raised in, in this sort of environment. You know where I really experience it? Is on the freeways, really. This is, this is where it's just, it's war on the freeway. As far as I'm concerned, I get in that car and I'm instantly at battle with other drivers. And uh, I don't know why, but for some reason in my car it's like a Holy Spirit free zone. I don't know why, it just, <laughs> I feel that way. And I'll be driving in the left lane, going with the flow of traffic, heavy traffic. You know, you can't go any faster because the guy in front of you can't go any faster because the guy in front of him. But you're going as fast as you can, left lane, and there's some jerk Riding my tail. I mean, right on my tail. And I'm getting madder, and I'm getting madder. And then he pulls this move, which I hate. Is, is There's a little opening on the right. right. There's some space in the right lane. So he passes me in the right, and is going to try to go around me so he can cut right in front of me and tailgate the next guy in front of me who's just 10 yards ahead of me. You know, somehow. He's going to do this crazy maneuver just so he can save, whatever, 0.5 seconds in his commute. 
And so he pulls around me. You know what I do? I floor it. <laughs> You're not passing me. Ugh. My wife's like, there's kids in the car. There's kids in the car, Jeremy. Stop it. Just let him go. And of course, it's, it's totally illogical. Because if I don't let the guy go, he's just going to get back behind me again. He's still going to be tailgating me. So it's actually to my advantage to let him go and let the crazy person not be tailgating me. But that's not it. It's like, I don't want to lose. I don't want someone to beat me. And, and if you're going to act like a jerk, then you're going to pay for it. You're going to try to cut me, and I floor it, so they have to go back behind. You know, it, it's just our nature. In our, our culture, the, the, the media, the entertainment that we see uh, celebrates and valorizes and romanticizes revenge. You know, Tarantino's last two movies, Kill Bill, Volume 1 and 2, which I'm not recommending that anyone watch. Uh, it's a movie about revenge. Or the one that re- more came out more recently, which is also a stupid movie, Four Brothers. I don't know if you've, you've seen this movie. Mama gets killed. The four brothers come back to town to find out who killed Mama. And they go around punching out everyone and shooting people and killing people until they finally get the bad guy who was behind the whole plot. And then, you know, at the end of these movies... It's like the good guy finally gets the pow and punches out the bad guy. And I go, ooh, yeah, what a great movie. And Jesus says, if someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. And I'm like, I'm not in Kansas anymore, Toto. I'm in the kingdom of God. It's funny, we always have taught our kids. We've told our kids, look, if someone is bullying you at school, you go find a teacher right away. You go to the authorities. But you know, if you're out in the schoolyard and there's no one around and some kid hits you, it's okay to haul off and aim for the nose as hard as you can. So anyway, I'm reading the Bible story with my kids. Right now we're reading through Luke. A couple months ago, and that's what I, I, before bed I read with my son and daughter, and we read this verse in Luke. My daughter says to me, Daddy, you told us that if I'm on the playground and some kid is hitting me and there's no one around, I can hit them back as hard as I can. But Jesus says, (laughs) he says, if someone strikes you on one cheek, turn them the other also. And she looks at me. So in my most theologically astute pastoral voice, I say, uh, let's pray, you know. <laughs> this teaching of Jesus is so against the grain of everything that I instinctively and naturally think. To love my enemies is just foolish from the perspective of this world. But it's what Christ calls us to do. He goes on, he says... Uh, if, you, if you look a little further, he says, if someone takes your cloak, do not stop them from taking your tunic. In other words, if someone takes your outer garment, offer them the shirt off your back as well. It would be some kind of equivalent translation. Uh, someone wants five bucks, give them ten. If someone wants to stay at your house for a night, let them stay for a week. You just Go ahead, just give. Don't, don't worry about it. Don't hold back. <clears throat> and then we get the golden rule in verse 31. Do to others as you would have them do to you. And we all say, oh yeah, that's right. But how many of us really do that? I mean, who really lives that way? I only know one man who did it consistently. How are we going to live like this? How is this going to be possible? This seems extremely difficult to be a follower of Jesus. I think it would probably be easier 
to just move to Hungary and learn to speak Hungarian, which is one of the most difficult languages to learn. It would probably be easier to move to a tribal people in Papua New Guinea, and you know where they put like big sticks through their ears and you know, big things in their lips, and that would probably be less painful than than really living out this kind of love for enemies that Christ is advocating. How can you do this? How is this feasible? And so we are very motivated to just ignore this part of Scripture. And Jesus understands that. And so in the next verses, he gives us motivations for why we should love our enemies. He gives us justifications or reasons. In fact, in the next verses, 32 to 36, just quickly here, he gives us three reasons why we should love our enemies. Three um, motivations that should inspire us to follow his commands and live according to the kingdom of God. And the first reason is this. first reason is, if we don't love our enemies, we are no different than anyone in the world around us. That's his first reason. There's no difference. Okay, look at verse 32. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. So if I don't love my enemies, really what difference is there in my behavior than anyone else in the world? Have you ever heard this line? I've heard this at funerals a lot, which kind of amuses me. I, I do funerals, and, um, and, and people will get up there eulogizing somebody, and they say, you know, Fred was a good person. He was a good person. He'd do anything for his family. For his friends, he'd give the shirt off his back. Well, yeah, wouldn't everybody? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think we all would. I don't know if this is a fact. I could be totally wrong, but if I was a betting man from Las Vegas, I would wager, I would wager that Osama bin Laden is good to his immediate circle, his closest circle. I bet he is. I don't know. Maybe that's wrong. But I bet you, to the people who are closest to him that he has to work with every day, he treats them well. I mean, don't we all treat well the people who treat us well? Don't we all love the people who we've developed a lifetime of trust with? So Jesus says, if that's the extent of your kindness and love and giving and mercy, well then, you know, what's the big deal? There's nothing different about you than anyone else. So that's the first reason that we should be motivated to love our enemies is because if we don't, then really our claim to be Christians is fairly hollow. The second reason he gives that we should love our enemies is that we will be rewarded if we do. This is kind of basic reward. Uh, verse 35, But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything in back. Then your reward will be great. What do you mean my reward will be great? If I'm lending out to everyone not getting anything back, sounds like I'm going to be losing money. That's not a business model. It's going to work. Uh, if I'm always just saying, okay, fine, whatever you want, I'm going to be a doormat. Where's my reward in this life? I think I'm going to be a loser in this life. I mean, how can you possibly be rewarded for that kind of behavior? And the answer, of course, is the reward comes in eternal life. And that was the sermon last Sunday, if you were here. It was all about the fact that this world is fading away. The world to come is eternal. And so if I look for my joy, my happiness, my satisfaction, my needs in this world... I'm ultimately grasping at sand and it's running through my fingers even as I hold it. I'm chasing monopoly money. It's not real. It's not lasting. It's going to fade away. But if I look to the kingdom of heaven, that is going to be eternal. It's going to last. I may have to wait a little bit for it. So that may mean that in the meantime, it's a little tough living in this world while waiting for the world to come. And that's why Jesus says back in verse 20, Blessed are you who are poor. 
For yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh in the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. That is how their fathers treated the prophets. So I have to have an eternal mindset. And if I want rewards that are real, then I have to live for the kingdom of God. So there's a second motivation. The first one is, if I don't live that way, I'm no different from the world. second motivation is the kingdom of God. And then the third motivation, which I think is the most powerful, is that in loving our enemies, we reflect the very character and nature of our God. Verse 35. Then your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, because He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Or as it says in Matthew's account, He causes His Son to rise on the righteous and the unrighteous. He sends His rain on the good and the wicked. God is so merciful. He's so kind. You look around this world, this world is just filled with wickedness and filled with evil. This world does not love God. Our religion is so hypocritical. This world does not... You don't see true love for neighbor everywhere. This is just not how the world operates. We don't obey God's commands, and when we do, it's pretty much because it, it won't interfere with our golf game. You know, It's very convenience-oriented. And so we take God's laws and God's commands and we filter them through the grid of selfishness and we take those few things that work for us and we, we are godless people. We worship false gods, we're atheists and we're you know, New Agers, we believe that I'm God. I mean, how blasphemous is that? And yet, what does God do? Day after day, He sends a sunrise. Day after day, He gives us a sunset. He keeps the world spinning. He keeps sending rain upon the world and still we turn away from Him. And He gives us beaches to go sit on vacation and enjoy. And there on the beach is a person meditating and pretending that they are God. And God lets them sit on His beach to do it. He's so merciful. He's so kind and loving. And people still turn away from Him. And He gives them spouses. And He gives them the blessings of children. And He gives them health to be able to go to work and earn money. And still people turn away from them. And so God sends out the Gospel. He says, Jesus has come. Repent and believe in Jesus. Be reconciled to Me. And still people turn deaf ears and hard hearts toward Him. Again and again. And, and so He prolongs the period of mercy. You know, He should just intervene and say, okay, that's it, I'm done. But He doesn't. He waits another day. And He waits another day. And today is January 8, 2006. He's waited another day, apparently. He didn't come last night. And He's waiting another day. Well, is, is there going to be an end? Yes. But in the meantime, he's just showing the extravagant, unfathomable majesty of his mercy to us. And still we turn away. A few here and there believe. But for the most part, humanity has just given God the stiff arm and said, no, thank you. Look at that kind of mercy. And Jesus is saying, imitate that mercy. And if God's mercy toward this world is not enough for us as Christians, then please consider God's mercy to us individually as Christians. That Jesus Christ came to die on the cross so that my sins could be forgiven. Me. 
I'm an ungodly, wicked person. And yet Christ came. He chose me before the foundation of the world purely by His grace. Jesus came and died on that cross. And then God opened my heart so that I could even believe in the Gospel. He's done it all. God has saved me. I haven't done anything to save myself. Look at His grace and mercy toward me as a a sinner. Jesus came. And they struck Him on the cheek. And he gave him the other cheek. And they struck him on that cheek. And he gave him his nose. And they punched him and beat him with rods. Jesus not only gave his robes, he not only gave the shirt on his back, he gave the flesh on his back to their whips. And when Christ hung on the cross, naked, humiliated, dying, people around him, hurling abuse at him and mocking him, He prayed for his enemies who were mistreating him. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. As it says in the book of Romans, chapter 5, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates His love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Amazing love, how can it be that Thou, my God, shouldst die for me? And so we have this cross on the wall to remind us of the great sacrifice that Jesus made, to remind us of the mercy of God. And we have the cross in the front of our bulletin, and we have the cross on our stationery here at church. Some of us have crosses on our walls at home. Some of you are wearing crosses around your necks. Some of you have a cross tattoo or a cross earring. Or, you know, we, we have the cross. But the real question is, are we as Christians embodying the message of the cross? Have we been so transformed by the mercy of Jesus toward me, his enemy, Jesus who turned me into his friend, that I then in turn communicate the message of the gospel by loving my enemies? Be merciful, just as your Father in heaven is merciful. Let's...